He is risen. All right, I wondered how many of you would remember. That's our, that's our go-to on Easter, right? Uh, just like the Scriptures say, the, the witnesses of the women see that uh, the tomb is empty. So let's try it again, even more uh, pronounced. He is risen. He is risen Amen. Amen. Well, today is a fitting day to conclude our study that we have been looking at in 1 Corinthians 15, what we call the resurrection passage. In fact, this wasn't even necessarily planned on my part, um, but it worked out that way. We've been looking at Christ's resurrection from the dead for the past several months and how that is to bring us hope that as Jesus was raised from the dead, so will His followers. Those who have already gone on and ourselves who are still alive. As 1 Corinthians, <clears throat> excuse me, chapter 15, verses 3 to 4, show us the gospel message is comprised of the message of the cross and the empty tomb, the resurrection. Verse 3 of 1 Corinthians tells us that this message, it is of first importance. That means that we must daily see the necessity of the gospel for our daily lives. In other words, it also means that we live because Christ lives. We live in the power that raised Jesus from the dead. We stand forgiven in Christ because of His death on our behalf. This is indeed the good news of the Gospel. Amen? And it's this good news that produces hope in our lives. That's what we've been looking at in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That the message of the Gospel is a message of hope and we are called to live in that hope. Verses 1-11 to 11 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 have showed us that this hope is rooted in Christ and Christ alone. Do not try to find your hope in any other thing. Verses 12-19 to 19 has shown us that the hope of the Gospel is under attack. The influences of this world, our own fleshly thinking, is prone to de-emphasize Christ and to put self on the throne. And that is an attack on the Gospel. The message of the Gospel is under attack. But as verses 20-28 to 28 of 1 Corinthians 15 show us, even though the message of the Gospel is under attack, that message is unshakable. Jesus is putting all things under His feet. This is to verses 29-34 to 34, to awaken our hope. We are to live sober-mindedly, fixing our gaze on Jesus, looking for His soon return. Why? Because no matter what, the hope of the Gospel, verses 35-49, to 49, it is an imperishable promise that death 
as we're going to see again this morning, does not have the final say. And that brings us to our current passage, verses 50 to 58, where we began to look at uh, two weeks ago to see that the last element of the hope of the gospel, according to chapter 15 of our passage, is that the hope of the gospel is to produce steadfastness in our daily lives. What does it mean to be steadfast? To be steadfast means to stand firm. It means to persevere. It means to be grounded in something despite hardship and difficulty. Isn't it easy to be steadfast when everything is easy? But it is to be all of these things in the midst of hardship and difficulty Not because we have an internal strength within us, but we are steadfast because of a fixed reality. A reality that does not change. It doesn't change with circumstances. It doesn't change with feelings. It doesn't change in conflict. You see, steadfastness implies that you are not swayed from one thing to another but you are firmly fixated on what is, using the words of Paul in verse 3, of what is of first importance. So this morning, can I ask you, what's of first importance in your life? You may say, Pastor Adam, I don't know what's of first importance in my life. Just think over the past couple days, over the past week, over the past few months, what has fixated your mind? That is of first importance to you. And how we need to move from a steadfastness in those things that are not of first importance to be reminding ourselves of what truly is of first importance. And that is why we gather together week after week, after week, to remind ourselves of our identity and of our hope. Together, as brothers and sisters. So this morning, once again, we are going to remind ourselves that our steadfast hope is the Gospel of Jesus Christ. The reality that if we have turned to Jesus as Lord and Savior, we've been cleansed from our sins, we have right standing with God, and we are awaiting Jesus' sure return from heaven. That is our hope. We began a couple weeks ago looking at what steadfast hope is. Steadfast hope And we're really looking from two angles in verses 50 to 58. Steadfast hope is first, hope for our future. And realizing that hope for our future, as we're going to see this morning, it gives us hope for our present. Verse 50 of this passage tells us again the promise of the resurrected Christ and what that means for us. The promise of the Gospel, it is imperishable. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the the imperishable. But what happens? There will be a change that takes place. And we talked about that two weeks ago in verses 51 to 53. 
You see, these mortal bodies cannot experience, they are not fit to experience all of the glories that awaits God's children. Right now, we live with a hope, but it is a hope that is not yet realized. It is a hope that that defies imagination. And we are reminded all too frequently of the imperishableness of our bodies. The imperishableness of our minds. The imperishableness of our stature. Of our stability. And the Gospel tells us that there is something greater yet to come. This steadfast hope is for the future, but it is also for the present. Maybe this morning, your mindset is, you know what, the Gospel, it saved me in the past, and I have stuff to look forward to in the future. But you are empty sitting here today. You see no relevance of the good news of Jesus Christ for your life today. Jesus says, I have come to give eternal life. That was not simply a future thing. That was a present, everyday reality of the life that you've been given. So this morning, we are once again going to remind ourselves and we are going to immerse ourselves in the reality that we have to cling to what truly matters. What is really of first importance? Not what we struggle with with making of first importance, but the reminder of what truly is of first importance because it's just like a puzzle. When you have the proper peace in place, everything else is going to fit together. But man, you get one piece out of whack, it throws everything else off. Maybe this morning, everything is out of whack in your life because you don't have that main, first important peace in the center of your heart, in the center of your mind. You see, the hope of the gospel produces a hope-filled people. And if your heart is filled with any other hope, you are not going to be a hope-filled person. So this morning, we're going to continue looking at how the gospel, how Jesus' resurrection for us brings us a hope both for the future and for the present. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for the joy that we share together. That, Lord, we serve a resurrected Savior. Lord, Jesus is alive. Jesus is doing a work, completing the work of redemption, both spiritually and physically at His return. And we look forward to that day But Lord, we can look forward to this present moment because you are doing just as real a work right now in our hearts, completing the work of redemption that you started in us today and tomorrow and the day after that until Jesus comes again. So Lord, remind us of what is of first importance. 
pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The gospel gives us a steadfast hope for the future. Verse 50, it's an imperishable hope. Verse 51, how are we going to experience this imperishable hope? We're going to be changed. We are going to be made imperishable to match the beauty and the infinite nature of the gospel that has been provided for us. But the good news doesn't just end there. I want to read with you verses 54 to 56. Paul just talks about this perishable body in verse 53 putting on the imperishable, this mortal body putting on the immortality. And it says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. I want to just stop right there in our text to give you another reason why we can have steadfast hope for the future. Not just because this is an imperishable promise, not just because we know that we have hope that we will all be changed one day, but thirdly, verses 54 to 56 we can know that death will be defeated. It'll be completely defeated. Verse 54, the beginning of this verse, gives us the timing of death's defeat. It says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable. When is that? When will death finally and forever be destroyed? It's at Christ's second coming. Isn't that what verses uh, 51 to 53 tell us? In fact, verse 52 says, In a moment, in the twinkling of, of the eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall all be changed. I'm not going to ask Nico uh, to, to blow the shofar again. Uh, But you remember that if you were here with us. Death will face its final blow in a single, indivisible moment of time. Just like that, God's power shines forth. And there will no longer be that which is perishable. There will no longer be that which is mortal. Paul has continually used these terms perishable and imperishable, mortal and immortal. Verse 42, verse 50, verse 52, verse 53. Why? Because we are surrounded by the weaknesses and the effects of sin in us and around us. There's no getting out of it. Maybe you're confronted with that even this week looking at a serious doctor's appointment or you're looking at someone that that, that you know that's undergoing serious health issues. 
You're struggling with sin. You are struggling with weaknesses of of whether it is a spiritual struggle or it is just a physical struggle. You're working long hours, whatever the case may be. We are confronted every day with the effects of sin and living in a fallen world. That's why Paul keeps repeating this. Yet there is coming a day, the Bible tells us, that death will no longer have a hold on God's people. In fact, we see that death will be defeated. Not only does Paul tell us when this will happen at Christ's second coming, but Paul loudly proclaims for us the finality of death's defeat. Victory is declared. Paul says at Christ's coming, at the end of this verse 54, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Victory is declared. You see, folks, when was victory achieved? Victory over death was achieved at the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus, as we've sung about, as we've read about, He conquered death when He was raised from the dead. Victory was achieved at the resurrection. When is is victory over death fully realized? It is fully realized at Christ's second coming. But something that we also need to keep in mind is that victory over death was prophesied. It was looked forward to going all the way back to the Old Testament. This saying, this declaration, death is swallowed up in victory, it comes from the Old Testament. In fact, Isaiah 25, verses 6-8 to is what Paul is here referring to. This was a promise to the people of Israel. And by extension, it is a promise to us as we've been grafted in the one olive tree of Israel. Look at what it says. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food. A feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of morrow, of aged wine well refined. And get this, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering. I want you to pay attention to this word picture Isaiah is using. The covering that is cast over all people. The veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of His people He will take away from all the earth. And here's our assurance. Not because Isaiah says it. Not because a pastor says it. For the Lord has spoken this is a promise from the Lord 
that veil that covers all peoples. It covers all nations. What is that veil? It is the curse of sin. It is death. And Isaiah prophesies of the day that the Lord will, using the same terminology we see here, will swallow up death forever. Isn't that a graphic word, swallow up? Death will be completely overcome. I like what one individual says. Before human beings can experience the joy of God's great feast, something must be done about the universal curse. At the end of every pathway, the grim reaper awaits us all. And that cold hand blights every human happiness. And that's so true, isn't it? But God will swallow, not merely remove, but envelop in such a way as to destroy that shroud. Moreover, He will do it on Mount Zion, the prophet says. And get this, for the Christian, what other meaning can this have than the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Folks, we are here today, gathered in this room, because of one thing and one thing alone, and that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the fact that Christ has come and He has paid for sin's curse and He has conquered sin's curse. And those of us that have looked to Him for eternal life now have that imperishable hope. Death is swallowed up. What is it swallowed up in? It is swallowed up in victory. I like what one individual says. He says, one day, the day is coming that death will be dead. Don't you like that? The day is coming that death will be dead. That, folks, is our hope. So there's this, this declaration of victory. We are victorious and then in verse 55, again, a quotation from the Old Testament, Hosea verse, uh, chapter 13, verse 14, death is taunted. I mean, victory is so sure that death is taunted. How many of you, when you were younger, used to taunt your friends because you would beat them, whether it was basketball or soccer or growing up in my home, boxing each other? Na 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 na, you can't beat me. We have a taunt in verse 55. What is the taunt? Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? You see, folks, compared to the great victory secured by Christ, death's present victory death's present sting is nothing in comparison and we're going to see the very next verse that there is a very true reality to death 
But compared to the victory that Jesus has secured for us, death is a worthless, defeated foe. Where's your victory? Though you seem to rule the day currently, it is a short victory. It is a victory that has an end to it. Though there seems to be a sting to death, it is a sting that will not last. Many of you can think through the sting of losing a loved one. The sting of that sibling, that spouse, that friend. It's no longer here. But you yourselves know as you have been comforted with the comfort of Christ, that there is a greater hope than what that sting has left. Let us not fool ourselves. Let us not live as if sin and death have the final word. But make no doubt about it, there is a very real intimidating reality to death. Is there not? I don't want to die. I don't want to to know my future and to know how I die. I'd rather leave that to the Lord. But there's a real intimidation here, isn't there? Because there is a sting to death. There is a power of death. Verse 56 says, the sting of death. What is the sting of death? It is sin. And there's a power of sin. What is the power of sin? It is the law. So there's a real intimidating factor to death. Death's sting is sin. Or as one person puts it, sin is the deadly sting that has led to death. If you like word pictures, you can think. Uh, Mike Rudolph last week, he talked about um, in Ghana, which I'll be heading to. Remember he talked about he was on the beaches of Ghana and he looks down, he's barefoot walking around and he sees a big scorpion. Think about a scorpion and think about that scorpion being named death. What's at the end of a tail of a scorpion that you don't want to encounter? It's a stinger, Right? Think of that stinger. You have death, this scorpion. The stinger is sin. And we have been infected with sin. And the result of that infection is death. The book of Romans puts it this way. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin. In this way, death spread to all people because all have sinned. We are all infected with sin. So therefore, we are all under the curse of death. Why are we all infected with sin? The poison of sin? Because we are all under Adam. That's what, in chapter 15, what we have looked at. Look at verse 21. For as by a man came death, by a man 
and here's the good news, has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. You see, what's the antidote to the poison? If you get stung with something venomous, you don't just want to sit there and enjoy it, right? A couple years ago, uh, we had a random house spider. I don't know if it was a brown recluse or something, but uh, Rachel had a little bite on her wrist, on, on, on the, cor- the side of her wrist, and, and it, it, it started as a little welt, and then as the day went on, started to get this longer and longer line going through her arm. And we thought, you know what, we should probably get that checked out. And, and it had to be put on an antibiotic, right? I mean, how foolish would it be to be like, oh, it's, it's here today, and it's only here tomorrow. Maybe it'll just go away. Maybe it'll clear up. God gave us white blood cells, right? That'd be kind of foolish, right? There needs to be a healing antidote. What is the healing antidote to the curse, the sting, that death has left, which is sin? The antidote is the good news of the gospel. The antidote is is not just knowing about Jesus' death and resurrection. It is embracing Jesus' death and resurrection. It is not knowledge that saves. It is embracing the truth of the Gospel in repentance and submission that brings salvation. That's the antidote. And even though we now, if you are followers of Jesus this morning, even though you have the antidote, uh, eternal life has been given to you, we still live in these bodies that have been corrupted by the sting. That scar from the sting is still there in our body. And we will still face physical death, but we know if we have the antidote that that physical death is the entryway to something greater. You see, there is a very real sting of death, and it hurts. And it is sorrowful. And we don't want to go through the deep waters of death. But as Christians who have the antidote, we know that this is actually a process to our healing. Can you imagine that? Now that's a lot easier to say than to have to come to experiential grips with when when we find out we have cancer or whatever it is. But did you know that physical death is actually a part of the process to our eternal healing? Our deceased loved ones are more healed than we are today. Can you imagine that? Those that are in Christ. But this verse tells us not only of the reality of a sting, but also a power. It says the power of sin is the law. Now what does that mean? The law is good. In fact, Timothy, uh, or Paul says to Timothy, the law is not corrupt. 
The law is good. The law is perfect. But what was the function of the law? To show people what sin is. Paul says, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known what sin was. It doesn't say he wouldn't have committed sin. We are all sinners, but it brought about a realization. Ah, so this is what sin looks like because now I have a perfect standard of righteousness before my eyes. In Romans 5, we already looked at here at verse 12, Romans 5 continues to talk about the law, and Paul says this, the law came along to multiply the trespass. How, was, how were trespasses multiplied according to the law? Or by the law? The law showed what is perfect and pure and holy And by knowledge of what is perfect and pure and holy, we saw the multiplicity of where sin abounds around us and in us. We were left without excuse. There is a power. When we know sin, or when we know what is right, and we realize our inability to do that right, don't we, in a sense, we experience being under the bondage of that which is right because we can't accomplish it? I mean, Paul says, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the bondage of this body? The things that I want to do, I don't do. But look how Romans 5 continues, but where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign through righteousness. Through Jesus' righteousness which has been given to us. And then we live out of Jesus' righteousness. And this righteousness results in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So what we see here is a triple idea that we read throughout Scripture. What's the triple idea? Verse 56 of our text. The triple idea is law, sin, and death. All the way back to Genesis 3, we see this. What was the law that God gave? Do not eat of the tree that is forbidden. That was the law. Where was the sin? Adam and Eve, they see that, wow, this fruit is desirous. They listened to the lies of the devil. They sinned. They took the fruit and ate it. And what happened? Spiritual death instantly occurred, and physical death would later occur. Law, sin, death. But Jesus came, and He fulfilled the law, and He has conquered sin and death. Amen? And all of this then leads us to this, once again, this great declaration in verse 57. Now, you see that word there, but. Man, we can be thankful for that word. Despite the sting of death and the power of sin, but thanks be to God. That wasn't the end of the story. 
But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Though the foe was great, though the foe was intimidating, we are victors, but we are victorious not because we have achieved victory, but because we have been given victory. Again, Romans 8, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, because not the law that was written on stones, but the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. There you have that triage, those three things again. Law, sin, and death have been conquered by Christ. And we now live according to the law that is written on our hearts through the Holy Spirit. The law of Christ's righteousness on our behalf. I love Romans 8.37. Despite every obstacle, it says, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. We can claim no boast in this victory. When I played on, uh, uh, in high school on, on the soccer team or the basketball team, I was never the, the, the best athlete out there, but I did enough where I could contribute to the team, and when our team won, I could boast in the victory that I was at least a part of it. But with this victory, there's no boasting. We were not a single, we were not a part of any single thing in this victory. And you know what that allows us to do? That allows us to boast only, to boast solely in Jesus Christ our Lord. You know, I was just reading a book to, uh, this past week, and it was talking about how we as evangelical Christians, as Protestant Christians, we boldly proclaim justification by faith alone. That if any of, if, if any of us ask, you know, is salvation, is it, you plus, is, it, is it your good works plus what Jesus has done? We would be quick to say no. But you know, in boasting in Christ alone, in Jesus alone, in faith alone, we are so prone to not live that way. You see, when the doctrine of justification by faith alone truly penetrates our hearts, we realize that we actually have no boasting that we can do in any part of our life. And why do we carry around the burdens that we are so prone to carry around? It is because that somehow we think that we have something to bring to the table to make ourselves sufficient in and of ourselves. We are living self-dependent creatures apart from Christ. Even though we would claim that our lives are fully dependent on Him. When the reality that we have nothing to boast of truly grips our hearts, it will free us to make our boast in Christ and Christ alone for all of life. 
Not that there will not be any struggles or any difficulties or any ups and downs, but it will be a continual process of coming back to where our hope is. And we will, over time, do that quicker and quicker and quicker. Or maybe I should say faster and faster and faster. Because the reality of Christ alone grips us more and more and more as we seek to live that out. We are victorious. And what does that victory bring? Verse 57, it says, thanks be to God. Our thankfulness is God-directed. It is not self-directed. Did you know that word thanks is the same word that's also translated grace in verse 10? Where does our thankfulness come from? It comes from the reality of God's grace in our lives. What is the difficult work in our Christian lives? Is it doing more? That's where our mind goes, right? I need to serve more. I need to to listen more. I need to do this more. I need to do that more. And and, and we, we try to do all of these things. And we get frustrated because we can't. Maybe the primary work, the work of first importance, needs to be, I need to be placing my full dependence in Christ more. And from that full dependence, like the center of a bike tire, all of the spokes go outward to all of those other things that we tend to focus on, leaving Christ out of the equation. How sad it is and how true it is in my life and I know in your life that we can celebrate Easter and in our hearts We're celebrating a Christless Easter. This is all hope that brings us steadfastness knowing the victory. But all of the realities of what will one day fully happen, that death will be finally and fully defeated, It is to give to us. We're going to move from the future. We are going to look deeper into the present. A steadfast hope for the present. And I just want to give you three quick truths regarding living steadfastly in the present. Look at verse 58. What a ribbon at the end of so great a passage of chapter 15. Therefore, now specifically, the therefore ties up verses 50 to 58, but but more broadly, the therefore is tying up all of the truths of chapter 15. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Principle number one regarding steadfast faithfulness for the present. We are to live every day in the victory of Christ. 
Therefore, my beloved brothers. When doubts and fears and worries and agendas and stressors begin to flood your mind, does your mind go deeper into those things until you're, it's like you're chained up it's like, or, or in a, in a boxed-in room and you feel so hemmed in? Or do you know, knowing that that's the outcome, when all of those things begin to come, do you run to your refuge, which is Christ? That is the only way that we are going to live every day in the victory of Christ. That we are going to say no to having a fleshly response and to say yes to what is truly reality. My new life in Christ. There's a fork in the road and every day we make that decision. Paul says, therefore, in light of all of this truth, that is fully because of Christ, not ourselves. We are to characterize verse 58. We are to live mindful of the works of God. We are to live in light of our identity. Beloved brothers and sisters, we are beloved by God. Not because of anything we've done, but because it is His love that has made us, as, as, as Paul says, accepted in the Beloved. So number one, if we're going to live steadfast in the present, we've got to live every day, not in our own victory, but the victory of Christ. When you feel like you are at your, on your worst day, and your feelings are in the gutter, your mind is, is in the gutter, if you are in Christ, did you know, I mean, this is one of those moments that you are still a victor in Christ? That's amazing. Number two, if we are going to be steadfast, steadfastly faithful in the present, we are to persevere in the work of the Lord. How easy it is to quit. Even Jeremiah, remember Jeremiah the prophet, the weeping prophet, a guy that was well acquainted with sorrow and grief? Jeremiah got so discouraged that, that he just said, I'm going to stop preaching. Every time I open my mouth, I have to suffer negative consequences. Forget it. It's hopeless. God, you called me to this, but I'm shutting my mouth. And what happened? Jeremiah says, when I shut my mouth, the message God gave so burned within me that I had to declare it. There are all times, there are times all of us feel like throwing in the towel. But we are to persevere. Not persevere in our own strength or persevere by living according to the flesh, trying to do the right things in the wrong way. No, the realm of our perseverance is persevering in the work of the Lord. And that work of the Lord sometimes brings difficulty. In fact, that word labor in verse 58 the word labor itself, it implies engaging in hard work. 
It implies difficulty and trouble. In fact, let me give you a few descriptions where Paul uses this word. 2 Corinthians 6.5, he says he faced beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he says, in toil, that's the same word labor, and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. You see, our steadfastness amidst difficulty, it's going to come knowing where our victory is. We persevere because we know that we are held in much mightier hands than whatever it is we're persevering through. And that is what gives us the strength to keep going. And then number three, or excuse me, before we get to that, what does this perseverance look like? This perseverance looks like, it says, being steadfast. Again, steadfastness means that we are to be anchored in Christ in the victory He's accomplished. If you want a present definition of what steadfastness looks like according to the context of this passage, all you have to do is flip over a single page and you can read verses 1 and 2 of this passage. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. You want to know what steadfastness looks like? And there's a reason that this, is book, this idea is bookended. At the beginning of chapter 15 and at the end, it is because from the beginning of our new birth, from the moment that we have been saved, to the very day that either we die or Jesus comes again, we have one responsibility in the Christian life. Hold fast to the Gospel. Place everything, all of your eggs in that one basket of the work of Jesus Christ. That is our single responsibility in the Christian life. Everything else flows out of that. Are you holding fast? That's what perseverance looks like. Failing to put your faith, whether it's theologically or practically speaking, in anything else outside of Jesus. Colossians 1.23 says, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. What's the opposite of, of being steadfast? It is shifting. James talks about being tossed with the wind and the waves. Not holding fast to anything. 
Perseverance looks like steadfastness. It also looks like immovability. It says being steadfast and immovable. This is simply a complementary term to the idea of steadfast, that we're not to be shaken or shifting. And then the text describes what this steadfastness and immovability looks like. The result of this is that we will always be abounding in the work of the Lord. In other words, this implies a full commitment, not a half-hearted one. It implies looking to Jesus and not ourselves. Looking to His truth and not our feelings. Looking to His work and not our own. Because the only way that we can abound in the work of the Lord is for His work to abound in us. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9.8, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Wow. All-inclusive. As God's grace abounds in our hearts, we are then able to abound in every good work. And then principle number three, according to verse 58, how are we to remain steadfast in the present? We cling to the hope of Christ, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So as we close today, I want to ask you, think about whether you're clinging to this hope that's found in Christ. Do you have confidence of the truth of verse 58? I mean, the text says that all of this takes place because we are knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So do you have this confident knowing? It is so easy to doubt in the moment what is true of eternity. Paul here is speaking of a confident knowledge. Are you walking in the confidence of God for you? Question number two, are you expecting an easy path? No. The Scripture doesn't say because Jesus has done all of these things for us, life is easy. No, this verse says that there's going to be work and toil and hardship. Have you maybe had some of the wrong expectations of the Christian life and you have become bitter towards your victor? Are you gauging your confidence in your own sense of value and worth? Are you forgetting that in the Lord your labor is not in vain? And you're discouraged saying, you know what, I serve the Lord and it doesn't seem like things work out and and I do this and I do that. And what you would basically say is knowing that in yourself your labor is not in vain. And the text doesn't say that. It's in the Lord. Our confidence is in a resurrected Savior that is working at this very moment on our behalf, completing the work of redemption. The very difficulties you're going through today, God is using to refine you and to draw you to Himself, not to run away from.
Where is your hope? This is the last time I'm going to be delivering a sermon in 1 Corinthians. Maybe you thought ever. I hope not. Pastor Dennis is going to be picking up and finishing our series in chapter 16, so I want to one more time exhort you that you and I must cling to what truly matters. That's Jesus and Jesus alone. I preach first and foremost to myself and then to you. I must cling to this. You must cling to this. Because that is the only way to be a hope-filled people.